Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to True Crime Stories with Crimatorium. Phoenix Sinclair was born on April 23, 2000, in Manitoba, Canada, to parents Samantha Kamich and Steve Sinclair. She loved watching movies and playing outside with her toys. She was also described as chubby by family and friends. By the time she was five years old, she wasn't chubby anymore and didn't spend time playing outside with her toys. This is Phoenix Sinclair's story. Shortly after Phoenix was born, CFS, or Child and Family Services, removed her from her parents because the two were deemed not ready to parent due to a past history of violence and substance abuse. Social workers also noted that Kemich hadn't purchased a crib or other baby items. Kamich also had another child that was a permanent ward of the state. Kamich showed little emotion as the workers removed Phoenix from her care just days after her birth. Phoenix was placed into foster care until she was five months old, at which time a plan was drawn up with Kamich to undergo a psychological evaluation and regular visits from in-home support. This plan was not enforced and eventually, social workers lost all contact with Kemich and Sinclair for four months. In February of 2001, when Phoenix was almost a year old, another plan was made for the family to have regular supervision. But like the first time, that plan also was not enforced. Kemich and Sinclair had another baby girl they named Echo that was born in March of 2001 less than a year after Phoenix. The couple split shortly after Echo's birth and Sinclair was taking care of Echo and Phoenix on his own in his home. In July of that year, when Echo was four months old, Sinclair took her to the hospital with respiratory problems where she passed away from pneumonia. Sinclair has a history of alcohol abuse and after the loss of his daughter Echo, he began to drink more. Feeling overwhelmed, he started leaving Phoenix with a couple named Kim Edwards and Ron Stevenson. Social workers were aware of this informal living arrangement, but it was never made official. Ron and Kim grew to love Phoenix and wanted to keep her, so when their marriage ended in 2003, Ron took Phoenix with him and they chose not to let social workers know. He is quoted as saying that when Phoenix first came into he and Kim's home, he wasn't thrilled to have one more mouth to feed. Before long, he began to adore Phoenix and nicknamed her Mount Fatty Boom Boom because she was so chubby. Phoenix adored him too and called him Big Guy. While Phoenix was staying with Ron, Kemich would take her for short periods of time, usually two days or less. 
Ron noticed that Phoenix acted differently after she had been with her mother and was even returned with head lice at one time. In April of 2004, Kemet showed up with her mother to Ron's home to take Phoenix for a visit. Ron never liked to send her with Kemich, but he was happy with the idea of having some downtime. Previously, when Kemich would take Phoenix, she was back within a couple of days. Not this time. Kemich took Phoenix and they were off the radar of social workers for the next several months. Kemich moved into a rented house in Fisher River Reserve just north of Winnipeg with a man named Carl Wes McKay a man with a history of domestic abuse and addiction to alcohol. McKay had two sons that lived with a couple off and on. Once CFS was able to track down Kemich and McKay, they made a visit to their home. McKay answered the door and told the workers that Kemich and Phoenix were out, so they were aware that a man was living with Phoenix, but they weren't aware of McKay's past charges of domestic abuse. Had they taken the time to do a background check on him, maybe Phoenix would have had a chance for a good life. Kamich and McKay had a child together in 2004, and CFS was notified. In early 2005, a family member reportedly contacted CFS regarding disturbing treatment they were witnessing Kamich and McKay inflict on Phoenix. Kamich made Phoenix do household chores and if something wasn't done right, she got called a whore or a bitch. The hospital also reported an incident where Phoenix got a piece of styrofoam stuck in her nose. It was there for three months and caused an infection. Kamich and McKay even shaved Phoenix's hair and she was mistaken for a boy. A social worker contacted the family member claiming to have visited Phoenix and reported that she was doing fine and well. By April of 2005, Phoenix was no longer that chubby little girl, and nobody had seen her for months. Kemich and McKay told everybody that she was in Winnipeg living with her father, Steve. McKay's two sons, both of which lived in the home with Phoenix, Kemich, McKay, and their biological child, finally told their mother the truth about what happened to Phoenix seven months after she was last seen. Police were called and they took Kemich and McKay in for questioning. The first clip is the interview with McKay. He is seen covering his eyes with his hands and sniveling as if he's crying. He had just admitted to the officer that he and Kemich beat Phoenix in the basement of their home and left her to die while they went to his father's house. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I threw her on, on the clothes. There's a bag of clothes I threw on there. I said, you know, listen to your mom, I said. So I, we went and got, and then Daniel called me, she said that this little girl wasn't breathing anymore. Yeah. I came back and said, I'm like, this. Yeah, I know you did. That's what Daniel said. And she said, I tried to revive her. Yeah. But it didn't work. And then I was scared. I bet you were. Then I told her. And then she said, let's, let's go bury her somewhere. Okay. Right, we know that. <laughs> so we were after up and we went. Buried her. Yeah. Where'd you bury her? <laughs> In the bush somewhere. Where? By the garden stump. 
After they left, McKay's son, who was 12 years old at the time, was suspicious by how quiet Phoenix was, as he was used to her crying and asking for food. He went down into the dirty, cold basement and found Phoenix. He touched her back, and she was cold. He held his hand up to her mouth, and she wasn't breathing. He called his grandfather to let him know about Phoenix's condition. When the two arrived home, they put Phoenix in the bathtub trying to revive her. As McKay tried to claim in the interview, he performed CPR on her. When that didn't work, McKay wrapped her in a garbage bag and placed her in the trunk of their car. The two then drove her body to a nearby landfill and buried her in a shallow grave. During the seven months that Phoenix lay in that shallow grave, Kamich and McKay continued to receive Phoenix's welfare benefits. CFS contacted the two during this period to set up a meeting to see Phoenix. Kamich made a plan to find a little girl that could pass as Phoenix so as not to raise any alarms with CFS and the RCMP and also so that they could continue receiving her benefits. As far as police could ascertain, Phoenix was killed in June of 2005. After McKay's interview with police, he led them to the burial site in March of 2006. All that remained of Phoenix was a skeleton and because the grave was so shallow, animals had spread some of her bones around the area. The next clip is the police interview with Kamich. You've done very well, Sam. You've done a good thing here, and I appreciate you being honest with me and telling the truth. You did the right thing. There's um, a couple things that we talked about that I'm a little bit confused on, though, because I, I feel like I kind of have two different stories about it, so I want to make sure I got it right and get the truth about what happened, okay? The part that you and I talked about that day uh, when Phoenix died, you were telling me about what you think killed her in the basement. Um, can you explain that again? Because you explained it one part, but you had talked before about it, and it's kind of different, so I want to make sure I got it right. So I want you to talk to me about the morning um, or that the day that you guys were at home when Phoenix died before you went to Wes's dad's she house. Was, she was okay. She was breathing. Okay. And I and that's what you told me. But when I had asked you about what it is when that you think came, killed her. Yeah, when we came back, I said it looked like she, she choked on her puke. That's what I said. That looks like me. She might have died choking on her puke. Right. There was a puke spot there. But then we talked about what happened down there. Yeah. And that's where I'm confused, is the time when you talked about the puke, but then you also talked about Phoenix being thrown across the floor or thrown onto the floor, banging her head. Yeah, that was the day before. Okay, so that's where I'm confused about, as what day, what thing happened. Mm -hmm. So... The, like, what do you mean? Like, the day before she died, 
So we 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 know she died on June eleventh, right? Mm -hmm. So on June tenth, what happened that day? That's the day I was pushed her. She banged her on the floor. Okay. That's what I said. She banged her head on the floor. Right. Was pushed her. See, I thought you said that that was the day that she died. No. Okay. So on June tenth, the day before, that's when he threw her and she hit her head on the floor. Okay, so yes. what else happened that day? Now, you had told me about hitting her in the leg. I think you called it a bar, maybe? A pole. Yeah. A pole. So did you hit her with that, that thing that day, the same day that he pushed her and she hit her head? Okay, so what day did that you hit her? That was a different day. I don't know what day that was, but that was a different day. I know that wasn't the day before she died. Okay. Okay, now the day that she died, you had talked about leaving with Wes to go to his dad's, mm -hmm. and then you came back because Daniel phoned because she wasn't breathing. Mm -hmm. Before you went to his dad's, what happened in the basement? I need you to talk to me about that again. Nothing happened in the basement. Like, what do you mean, like, something like, like, what do you mean, like, what happened? Well, we talked about... There's nothing that happened. She was... She was breathing. She was all right to me when before I left. Okay, she, so she was she was laying there, yeah, but she, she was breathing. And when you say she was laying there, where was she laying? On the floor. The two were arrested and charged with first degree murder. They both pled not guilty. Each had separate defense attorneys and they were tried together and neither of them testified on their own behalf. Their trial began in November 2008 and lasted three weeks. Most of the harrowing details that came out in court came from McKay's sons, who witnessed what was done to Phoenix. They described Phoenix being choked by McKay in a game he called chicken. He would wrap his hands around her neck and pick her up off the ground until she passed out, then throw her to the ground. The defense countered this claim by suggesting that McKay was just play wrestling. One of the few times she was able to go outside was to take the garbage out. McKay's son described times when he would shoot at Phoenix with a pellet gun, telling her to run. McKay would shoot her for the fun of it and she would cry, he said. The defense tried to suggest that the shootings were accidental. They rarely saw her eat or drink or use the bathroom. They often tried to bring her food into the basement where she spent most of her time, but if they got caught, they were reprimanded by Kimmich and McKay. One time, when one of the boys were caught giving Phoenix food, Kimmich responded by saying, What the fuck are you giving my daughter food for? He described a time when Phoenix was forced to eat her own vomit. He was witness to the final beating that Phoenix received on that day in June. Kamich and McKay passed Phoenix back and forth between each other, taking turns in punching her. He testified that his father dealt the final blow to Phoenix in the basement where her head hit the concrete floor. It was after this that McKay and Kamich left to visit McKay's dad. When they came home and looked at Phoenix, they weren't even crying or anything, he said. I'd look at their faces. I saw no tears, nothing. They didn't even care about what they were doing. 
After they were done wrapping her in the garbage bag, they said, Watch your baby sister. We're going to go dump and bury her, he said. A friend of Kemich also testified regarding the treatment she witnessed. Kemich was smoking crack, she said, and Phoenix had a lock on the outside of her bedroom door, although she wasn't sure if Phoenix was locked in there or not. Kemich gave away all of Phoenix's Christmas presents one year, saying that she was too bad and didn't deserve them. The friend also noticed that Phoenix had begun wetting her pants and touching her genitals, causing her to wonder if she was being sexually abused. Jurors were also shown a letter that was written in March of 2006 by Kemich to Phoenix. It read, To my daughter Phoenix, I wanted to tell you that I miss you and I think about you every day. Not one day goes by that you're not thought of. I'm so sorry this bad thing happened to you. I know lots of people are hurt by this and extreme pain. You are loved. You are beautiful. You are pretty. You are an angel. You are everything the world. I want you to know that I love you and you'll always be in my heart. You are in a special place looking down on us. I love you, Phoenix. Someday we will meet again and I'll tell you in my words how much I love you and that I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I love you. Love, Mom. Sam. A biological anthropologist examined the skeletal remains of Phoenix. She testified that about a month before Phoenix's death, she suffered fractures to bones all over her body. There were new and old fractures, and some bones didn't have a chance to heal before they were fractured again. In closing arguments, Kamich's defense attorney admitted that her client didn't deserve any sympathy, but it was McKay that dealt the final blows to Phoenix and orchestrated the cover-up. They also claimed that McKay was an abusive monster who forced Kimmich to attack her own daughter. There are many things that she should have done and should not have done. She treated her daughter terribly, but she did not kill her, she said. She called McKay a violent man who ruled the home with an iron fist and clearly hated Phoenix because she wasn't his biological child. McKay's attorney claimed on closing that his client was manipulated by Kamich and that she was the real killer. This is not some wallflower type of woman who was intimidated and dominated by Mr. McKay. Miss Kamich was the dominant force in that house, he said. She is most definitely the type who could kill and did kill her child. A callous woman who cares nothing about her child. That woman is a cold-hearted woman. It is unclear on the exact amount of time the jury deliberated, but a guilty verdict to first-degree murder was handed down to both defendants. They were each given an automatic life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years. Kemet showed no emotion upon hearing the verdict, and McKay was visibly shaken. He tried to make an apology to the court, but was overcome with emotion. Kemich was defiant in her statement to the court. Everybody can say what they want to say. Call me whatever you want. I never did this, and I know that, and Phoenix knows that, she said. 
Some of the jurors and the RCMP were in tears when the verdict was read. Both Kamich and McKay appealed their convictions, arguing that they were unfairly convicted and should have been tried separately. They also claimed that they didn't mean to kill her and denied forcing her to stay in the basement. Under the criminal code, someone is deemed to have committed first-degree murder instead of second-degree murder or manslaughter if he or she forcibly confined the victim at the time of the slaying. The verdict was contrary to law and against the weight of evidence, said Kemich's lawyer. All of their appeals were dismissed. The Manitoba CFS was heavily criticized for how it handled the Phoenix Sinclair case. An official inquiry was opened up into the practices of CFS of Manitoba that cost $14 million. It was agreed upon that social workers repeatedly missed warning signs and closed her case several times, often without even seeing Phoenix. At the end of the inquiry, Commissioner Ted Hughes issued a report and concluded that child welfare fundamentally misunderstood its mandate to protect children and left Phoenix defenseless against her mother's cruelty and the sadistic violence of the mother's boyfriend. He made 62 recommendations as a result, and most have been implemented. The following clip is an interview Kimmich had with a reporter that gives insight into her defiance and background. What did you do to her? What did I do to her? Yeah. I loved her. That's what I did to her. I'm not saying that I was the best parent in the world or anything. But as a mother, isn't it your duty to protect your child? Yes, it is. Didn't you fail in that regard? Yeah, I failed. I failed her and I failed myself. I could say you failed everyone else. Like, I know you guys can sit there and and think that I have no feelings or anything about what's going on. Like, everybody shows their emotions in different ways. Like, not everybody cries when something happens. Phoenix would still be here today if Wes had never bothered me. Because before Wes entered into my life and Phoenix's life, me and Phoenix were good. We laughed, we had fun. We would play, say things to each other like, you know, I love you, hug each other. That's that's the life of me and Phoenix. That's how we were before Wes came into the picture. I love Phoenix and I care for Phoenix. And if, if I could have changed things, I would do it in a second so that this wouldn't have happened to her. And I'm telling you that I didn't kill my own kid. I would never do anything like that to her. What, uh, I don't know that we know much about your background. Um, we heard quite a bit, I think, about Wes's background during that insanely long audio tape where he sort of told his whole life story to the police a few times. But what is your background? How many brothers and sisters? I don't have any sisters. I have two brothers. My oldest brother committed suicide. And he was how old? He was 17. And how old were you? I was 12. And how and where was that? Um, he committed suicide in 1993 in Swan River, Manitoba. In the house, or? Um, apparently he jumped off of a grain elevator. And my mom is alive. And my dad passed away in 89. Of like natural causes? 
Um, I'm not sure. I wasn't there. Apparently, he fell down the stairs and choked on his own vomit, and there was nobody around to help him. I'm not sure what happened. Right. And your mom is still alive. Do you have any contact with her? I have contact with my mom, yeah. She lives in Winnipeg? Yeah. Um, did she remarry? or? She was never married. Oh, okay. Did she have any more children? Like, do you have any stepbrothers or sisters? No. No? no. And your other brother is still alive? I have two brothers that are, 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 that are alive. Oh, so. sorry. So you, you had three brothers? I had brothers? three brothers, yeah. And what about, do you have any contact with your other two brothers? My second oldest brother, I haven't seen him or talked to him in quite a few years. I don't know. Nobody knows where he is. So you didn't grow up in care or anything, right? Like I grew up in care right until I was 18. So you were taken away from your mom? Yeah, a few times I was taken away from her. What was the problem? Was she, I guess, did she drink? Alcohol, I guess. And so you didn't live with your parents very much then? No. And what about you? Do you have, do you consider yourself having like an alcohol problem, drug problem? No, I don't, I don't, no, not drugs. Not now, obviously, being in no. custody, but, but did you at one point? I don't think so, no. Not alcohol or drugs? I'm not going to say I never did drugs. Right. But, no, I've never, I've never had a drug problem. Never been addicted where you needed it to get you through no, the day? No, no. And drugs like cocaine and... No. And what was growing up in care like? Uh, it was horrible. It took 13 years for Phoenix to get a headstone for her grave. A GoFundMe raised the $1,000 that was needed to make this happen for her. Phoenix was laid to rest in the Brookside Cemetery in Manitoba, Canada. Canada. 